From the Omaha Bugle Global News Headquarters, this is the Global News Network with Senior Correspondent Jeff Weaver and Senior Correspondent Adam Von Romer. Greetings and salutations, Mr. Weaver. We are back at the Global News Network desk of the Omaha Bugle in our pre-4th of July edition here. And once again, we're the ones who got the gift. The Supreme Court ruled Friday against the Student Debt Relief, I guess, Executive Order Act or whatever it was. And again, according, <laughs> again, along ideological lines, two or three of the justices have come out railing, writing 50-plus page opinions on it, and none of which seem to address the core problem with this particular bit of presidential prestidigitation. So I know you've done a little bit of research and reading, and I'd like to get your take, if I may, on the whole thing. Well, you know, Adam, it was a rather bad week for the Biden administration. First, the affirmative action ruling came out, which essentially said that race could not be used as a factor in college admissions. Mm -hmm. And I think the point that we both drew from that one is that it's going to have a lot of reverberations from a philosophical sense in other parts of society because it's essentially saying it's just something that can't be used to justify things. And I would not be surprised if it carries over into the workplace, you know, where we try to return back more to the pure meritocracy. I'm not sure we ever had a pure meritocracy, but at least the idea of trying to hire the best qualified people and not basing it on such things as skin color and national origin. So that, to me, may be the more significant aspect of that. And when you get right down to it, you know, capitalism is about merit and merit should Merit doesn't mean you have to be white to get the job. Merit just means it's the best person. So it's colorblind when you get right down to it. Capitalism is absolutely colorblind when it's practiced and it's pure fault. Mm-hmm. So I digress. But anyway, so we then get to the second monumental ruling this week, which again has sent uh, many of the far left into a tither. And <laughs> it's always fun to see their blood pressure go up. You know, this thing originated with our dear leader, essentially what was it, three years ago, mm-hmm. right after he got elected, signed an executive order providing for, well, essentially what they did originally, I think, was to delay, put a, a hiatus or a moratorium on student loan payments without the interest accruing. Right. From my understanding, and Adam, you can correct me, but I think that to this point, that three-year hiatus, or almost three-year hiatus, has cost the U.S. government about $100 billion. Does that sound right? You know what? Honestly, Jeff, I really don't know the figure. But again, I would hazard to guess that that's probably a righteous number. Because according to what I've seen, that there's something like 43 million people that have student loans out there that I guess are federally insured or guaranteed. So that's entirely possible. You know, that's a lot of bodies and a lot of money. Well, and the central issue with this whole thing with first the moratorium that essentially was encouraged by the fact that we were still in the pandemic. And indeed, right. the Trump administration had initiated a pause in the student loan repayments because of the pandemic. So it didn't originate with Biden, but Biden kind of took it to a whole new level. Right. And first, it was the total cessation of student loan payments and the accrual of interest for well, ever since he basically became president. And then they made an effort to start doing actual loan forgiveness unilaterally without the consent of Congress. Right. 
And that's kind of where it really ran afoul. You know, you could sort of argue that pandemic and so forth is a national emergency. They were drawing up that so-called HEROES Act right. that was passed in 2003, which gave the Secretary of Education certain rights to essentially alleviate the impact of obligations such as student loans on people who are affected by emergencies and so forth. But it was never intended to apply to such a large constituency as everybody who has a student loan. There was never any kind of authorization in that legislation. But uh, well, that's, we, Jeff, that is exactly what I read, that it was intended to grant some temporary and limited relief. It was not to be a blanket relief program. And that was the argument that the current administration had was, well, yes, it's perfectly lawful under the current legislation. And I think that that's basically, I mean, I think the word for that, it would be licentious on their part. Well, you know, it kind of gets back down to a very basic constitutional argument, and that is that the Congress is the, essentially the House, and the Congress appropriates money, and the Congress presumably would be the body that would be needed to essentially wipe out billions and billions of dollars of debt obligations. The executive essentially directs with how money should be spent, but they don't have any power to appropriate funds in the coral areas. They don't have any power to, you know, forgive loans that have been made as authorized by the Congress. Well, you know, Joe Biden, though, he doesn't take kindly to limitations. He's kind of a more freewheeling sort of guy. And we figured if he signed this executive order that would forgive certain amounts of loans for certain individuals, uh, I believe it was, uh, was it $10,000 for certain types of applicants, then if you were low-income Pell Grant recipients, like $20,000, that yeah. may be a little on the... Uh, well, I, you're, you're certainly more familiar with the numbers than I am. Yeah, I saw in the article where they stated that it was up to $20,000 per. And I mean, that's certainly right there with your conversation. You know, one of the questions that immediately arose in my mind is, okay, so we're going to do all this debt forgiveness. Yes, where are we going to go with that? Well, I think the, the big equity thing that came up is essentially you have a lot of you know, people who've gone to college, and which is great, but you have a lot more people in the country who have not gone to college, but they also have to be taxpayers who are impacted by this. So if you forgive these oh, you you little so loan actually you pay the bills? Yeah, yeah, those guys. And so you have this situation where you could have higher earners who are higher earners and due in part to the fact they went to college and were in fact funded in part or wholly by student loans being subsidized by, shall we say, working class, middle class people who did not go to school, did not borrow the loans, or even worse, the ones that went to school and paid everything themselves, worked their way through school. So there was a real equitable argument, which obviously did not impress the Biden administration particularly. But mm -hmm. to, to me, it would be rather off-putting to be, you know, a, a laborer and be paying extra taxes to pay for the forgiven loans of somebody who's gone to become a chemical engineer or a brain surgeon or whatever. Mm -hmm. hmm. Well, you know, my next thought is, okay, let us pretend like we went ahead with this. $400 billion Christmas present. Mm -hmm. And I believe this is, I mean, speaks directly to your point. Well, where does that $400 billion come from? Is that another another fine example of modern monetary theory? Or the proverbial kicking the can down a few more blocks yeah. down the road. It's an awfully long road at this point. Oh my God. 
I, I'm like, holy cow, when does the beneficence end? And listen, I, I just see the thing, the whole thing was originally, in my opinion, nothing more than political pander. Yeah, it was an attempt, and a vain, glorious attempt, to seem like the hero of every man. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna take care of everybody, and you know, everybody's gonna get everything. And the problem with that is somebody, somewhere, somehow, is gonna have to pay the bill. Now, maybe it'll be long after the current administration has, let's say, faded, hopefully, into a distant memory, but you know, four hundred billion dollars, I believe is the number quoted here. It's $20,000 per person. There's 46 million people that could have potentially qualified. I mean, this is just a lot of problems here. I mean, we're going to bail people out. The White House had 26 million applications. You know, that's a lot of dough. And look, to your point, I mean, we're throwing that. At, this is the one that we've talked about over and over again. You just brought it up. We're throwing that program directly onto the back of the taxpayers those you know 80 percent of the population that pays their taxes and goes to work every day oh yeah yeah there's no question about that but you know the thing that really concerns me is it seems like our legislators who as you pointed out many are not even able to balance their own checkbooks so <laughs> why why wouldn't we want them running the ship of state that there seems to be almost this increasing disconnect between the reality of what we're getting ourselves into with a national debt that is, I guess, going to be around $35 trillion in the next two years based upon that most recent debt ceiling negotiation. Mm. And you know that you know they're going to spend it all. I mean, if you gave them $10 trillion, they'd spend it all. There would be, it's sort of a corollary of that whole idea of filling a vacuum. You know, <laughs> if there's a vacuum, something fills it up. Well, you know, if there's something to be bought, they will buy it, whether they need it or not. Yeah, well, so, you know what? We certainly need more of the Pentagon's $500 a piece toilet seats. You know? Well, the point I was getting at is the whole idea that there is less and less concern about dealing with reality. It's sort of like, it's almost like being on the Titanic in a sense, and the captain of the ship is just sailing into an ice field because, you know, he wants to get to New York by a certain period of time. And, you know, here we are on this ship of state that's sort of sailing into ever larger oceans of red ink. And nobody seems to be saying anything like, this is really not a good idea. You know, the biggest component of our budget in a few years is going to be the interest on the debt. And it's just going to keep expanding, crowding out monies that could otherwise be used for discretionary programs and so forth. And you know, by my mind, it just reflects an absolute indifference to the potential consequences, which I think are pretty much inevitable should they continue this path. Oh, yeah. If I might interject for a moment, recently, and this is a little field from what we're talking about now, but I recently read an article where there's a certain undercurrent of, let's say, panic or concern on Wall Street because I believe, was it Secretary Powell said that they're eyeing, Treasury is eyeing selling securities to raise money to help pay down the outstanding debt. And one of the questions that came up about that whole conversation was, well, what happens when they start selling these instruments, right? Mm -hmm. And in order for you to attract investors and capital, you have to pay a yield. Well, mm -hmm. if your bank is offering a 3 or 4 or 5% yield or whatever that magic number is this week, and all of a sudden, you know, the Treasury is offering securities 
at 7% to attract investors, then there's that little thing called disintermediation where, you know, investors, money, has a tendency to migrate directly to the higher source of yield. So now we've got a situation where Treasury is trying to raise capital to alleviate the debt by selling securities. Well, the money's coming out of the banks, further exacerbating the already exacerbated <laughs> banking issues. And now we've got a situation where I think what they would effectively do is set up almost like a banking death spiral because you got to get money. So what do you do? You raise the rate to attract investors. The investors mm -hmm. take their dough. They go right out to the market themselves, intermediating, going around the banks, in other words, right to the capital markets, buying their securities at higher yields. Banks don't have any money to lend or right. to you know, lay off on their borrowers. And now we've got a big problem because now essentially the entire banking industry just became illiquid overnight. And we're already starting to see issues, you know, systemic issues with banks and bank failures because certain banks ran out of money. Well, they eventually they got caught in the whole squeeze when the Fed started raising the rates so rapidly, even though they said for years they were going to have to raise rates. And I think because they'd never done anything for the past few years prior to beginning the rate increases in 2022, the bank sort of didn't take them seriously and didn't make some efforts to get out of or diversify their assets so that they wouldn't be essentially paying more out than they were getting on interest. In other words, paying more out to borrowers than they were receiving. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, we're now sitting here looking at a situation where the banks are going, we've been here before. Oh, we don't have any money on the streets. Well, why? Because nobody wants to borrow at eight and a half percent. Yeah, and, and I misspoke, not borrowers, but lenders, depositors, essentially. So oh. you have to give depositors more money than you're able to make by putting the money out there in the market with borrowers. Yep. So you get yourself caught in a very tough situation, which, of course, is what brought down them. Now, it was at least a major cause of the Signature Valley Bank mm -hmm. failure and some of the other banks that had issues. Oh, yeah. When it's not going to, like I said, I don't see if we continue to rack up more and more debt, i.e. $400 billion worth of debt forgiveness, and continue this, I think, like you said before, you know, we, we don't want to say drunken sailor because it's kind of derogatory to drunken sailors everywhere, but... I'd rather have them running the budget than the current people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, at least when they run out of money, you know, they go back to the ship and get back to work. They don't just come up with a creative new alternative to figure out a way to continue to produce more money. Back to the student loan thing. The other thing that they cited in the article was, and I think you may have touched on this, the administration lacked the constitutional ability to do it because that is the purview of Congress, not the White House. Right. I think there's pretty little debate on that, except amongst people who work at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But yeah, I mean, Congress appropriates the money and uh, essentially the executive branch provide the budget, or at least they used to. I don't know if we've actually had a real complete budget in many years when you get right down to it. I think it's more continuing resolutions that kind of get us to the next crisis point. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely accurate because I can't remember, I mean, I think, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but the last time I remember anything that remotely resembled a budget might have been way back in the, you know, the dark ages of, you know, the Reagan administration. 
Well, I just don't know. I guess that's something you have to look at. But I, I think we've had budgets more recently, but for the life of me, for the last 10, 15 years, I can't even remember a actual budget. It's always been spending, continuing resolutions, and it gets us to a next point, and so on and so forth, which doesn't instill a lot of confidence in the Congress to get things in shape. You know, that's ultimately the thing, though. You know, the president can do whatever the president wants to do, but if the Congress doesn't appropriate the money, the president's kind of got his hands tied behind his back. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, and, yeah, but I, it seems to me that trying to pass something this large, trying to give Congress the slip, you know, it just doesn't seem like, it's like, oh, no, don't don't look here. Look over here, you know? It's like, really? Well, the thing that surprised me, well, you know, I'm all the, the thing that surprised me is that I think in past, you know, maybe maybe 20 years ago or whatever, even though you had a Democratic president, if you had a Democratic Congress, I think they would have wanted to put the kibosh on something like this because they would be very jealous of their prerogatives being violated. You know, in their case, the ability to appropriate funds. And, uh, you know, like, for example, when Reagan was president, you had Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House. Again, Reagan was Republican, so it's not really a great analogy, but Congress would, I think, be much more assertive in saying, you can't do this because we didn't appropriate, you know, and of course, this go-around, you have the congressional members on the Democratic side say, well, we think it's okay, we don't think we have to do it, and that sort of surprised me because, you know, that's one of their most basic fundamental powers, you know, the purse string power. And if mm-hmm. they're saying, hey, president can do whatever just because it's a politically expedient thing and they want to see their boy Joe Biden chalk up a victory and be able to, I mean, let's face it, it's all about trying to spread some largesse among 46 million borrowers, and hopefully they'll all go to the polls and vote for their benefactor. I mean, that was the whole thing behind this, obviously. Was well, it's a, yeah, I was going to say, and then the other thing that, that immediately pops into my mind is, what happens to the other 200 to 300 some odd voters who are essentially, well, footing the bill? Well, that's the thing, and nothing else. You know, politicians make calculations all the time about how something is going to be received, you know, politically, you know, who's going to be for it, who's going to be against it. Right. And my guess is that they count on a lot of people just having zero interest in what's going on or not paying any attention to what's going on. So if you could motivate most of that 46 million group of people to vote, you know, in a country where, you know, let's face it, I think even during the presidential elections, the voting rates are in the 60 percentile range. I think that's that's generous. Well, it could be, but for some reason I was thinking that may have been somewhere where the last election was. But it's more than 50, but it's not substantially more than half the electorate. So... You've got a lot of people who, the so-called low-information crowd, who aren't even going to vote, don't pay much attention. Yeah, they have to make a calculated game. We'll just ignore them. And then you've got the people on the other side of the aisle, the Republicans, who are always going to oppose them. So they figure there's a certain number there. But if they can peel off some of those who are recipients of this loan forgiveness, yeah, I mean, it's a pretty cold calculation that this might get a control of the Congress as well as the White House. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think, un- unfortunately, it's always about money and power. You know, I think you and I can figure out why most things happen in Washington based on those two things. Hmm. I was going to suggest you sound a little jaundiced. You're, you're not suggesting that our much vaunted government is run by people who are pretty much governed by their own self-interest? I think, I'm not saying everybody in the Congress is that way, but I 
unfortunately, there are a number who are that way. And I, you know, I don't think I don't think anybody's gonna. We could go into names, but it would take more time than we have on this program. So we will pass on that.